Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. We come to you every Friday, and as always, I'm Scott Jones, your host. Today, we have, for the first time on the Mockingcast, Jacob Smith, who is the rector at Calvary St. George's Parish in New York City, which annually hosts the Mockingbird New York City Conference, which this year is April 14th through the 16th, and you can register at mbird.com. After we talk with Jacob, we'll be joined by C.J. Green to discuss Another Week Ends, which is our weekly roundup post where we highlight things that anybody with a Christian cosmopolitan and grace-infused passion for life would want to pay attention to out on the interwebs. In the 17th chapter of Matthew's gospel, we find a really interesting story where Jesus' disciples are approached by people collecting a religious tax, a temple participation kind of tax, and they ask Jesus if their master pays the tax, to which the disciples acknowledge that he does. Jesus asks a really interesting question. He says, when, it, when a king extracts a tax, does he take it from the sons or from others or from foreigners or from subjects? They, of course, acknowledge that the sovereign or the king takes taxes from others, not from sons. To which Jesus replies that, they, that, that the sons then are free. He then does something really curious. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. Capon sees this enacted parable as Jesus's gospel critique of religion and religious institutionalism and the prison such things can be for people. Capon summarizes the meaning of this strange parable as follows. The point is we haven't got a card in our hand that can take even a single trick against God. Religion, therefore, despite the correctness of its insistence that something needs to be done about our relationship with God, remains unqualified bad news. It traps us in a game we will always and everywhere lose. But the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is precisely good news. It is the announcement in the death and resurrection of Jesus that God has simply called off the game, that he has taken all the disasters religion was trying to remedy and without any recourse to religion at all, has set them to rights by himself. How sad then when the church acts as if it is in the religion business rather than in the gospel proclaiming business. What a disservice, not only to itself, but to a world perpetually sinking in the quagmire of religiosity when it harps on creed, cult, and conduct as the touchstones of salvation. What a perversion of the truth that sets us free when it takes the news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and turns it into a proclamation of God as just one more insufferable bookkeeper. For my money, what Jesus sent is clearly and for the first time in the coin in the fish's mouth is that he is not, thank God, Santa Claus. 
It will come to the world's sins with no lists to check, no tests to grade, no debts to collect, no scores to settle. It will wipe away the handwriting that was against us and nail it to the cross. It will save not some minuscule coterie of good little boys and girls with religious money in their piggy banks, but all the stone-broke, deadbeat, overextended children of this world, whom he, as the Son of Man, the holy child of God, the ultimate big kid, if you please, will set free in the liberation of his death. And when he senses that, well, it is simply to laugh. He takes a gone fishing sign over the sweatshop of religion. And for all the debts of all sinners who ever lived, he provides exact change for free. How nice it would be if the church could only remember to keep itself in on the joke. What great thoughts as we continue in the beginning of the Lenten season. And now, on to Jacob Smith. On the Mockingcast, for the first time, Jacob Smith, the rector at St. George's Parish, right, in New York? Uh, the Parish of Calvary St. George's in New York City. Parish of Calvary St. George's. How can I get that wrong? I'm like Larry King, no research. <laughs> no, One time, right. Larry, Jerry Seinfeld was on Larry King, and he said, uh, well, I mean, what was it like, uh, you know, was it tough after the show was canceled? He's like, canceled, Larry. I went out number one. They offered me millions, and I, I went out on top. Oh, I mean, was it there? No, big difference, Larry. All right, can someone get Larry an intern? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's how I feel like right now. Can't, I feel like I'm getting Scott an intern. No, um, it's so good. Well, because everything that happens with Mockingbird happens at St. George's Church as opposed to Calvary. But, uh, you know, um, the two churches, there were actually three churches that were merged in the 70s. Uh, it was Calvary, St. George's, and Holy Communion. Holy Communion was eventually sold and, uh, in the 70s and became uh, that notorious nightclub in New York City called the Limelight. Um, uh, and, uh, and so it uh, just was a notorious nightclub. But the other two, you know, continued to function as churches. And now we're, we're, our pitches were two churches, one parish. And so uh, St. George's is the second oldest continuing worshiping congregation in New York City where the Mockingbird Conference is. And uh, um, it was started as a chapel of Trinity Wall Street in 1747. And what most people don't know is that um, it was originally the chapel of King George II. But after the Revolutionary War, you couldn't have that as, you know, the name of your chapel. So they Yeah, dropped... that was a downer. I mean, it's a, it's a tough sell after the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I mean... and so afterwards they dropped King and added Saint. And so, you know, and so there it is. So we're there part of that history. And your church is your church is it's doing pretty well. I mean, by by, especially by kind of mainline blue state urban standards. Yeah, people are actually uh, people are uh, are showing up on Sunday, which is uh, which is which is exciting and uh, it's new. Uh, you know, it's interesting being a mainline church. You know, it's kind of where I don't know if you've ever been to New York City, but it seems like everybody from the south is decided to plant a church here in New York City. It's like Mordor and they want to save it. And so, you know, there's like like kind of a built-in group there, like a lot of kids or whatever from Atlanta move here and they want a little slice of home. So they go to one of those. Uh, a lot of the folks that are coming to uh, Calvary St. George's are just kind of like either real New Yorkers or like kind of 
folks that are just like, what is this? And wait, are you saying that God loves the unlovable? Is that what, you know? And so we have a lot of folks who've come and they've either tried to change New York City and it completely kicked them in the face or uh, they have, they're failing somewhere and, uh, you know, and the gospel is a bit of respite. But most of the people who are coming into our church uh, walked on glass to get there. And uh, it's really powerful. And it's probably one of the most diverse churches in New York City. We have Caribbeans, white hipsters, homeless people. It's, it's, it's quite a sight. So. And you're not, and you're, you're, this sounds like a dynamic parish and you're not using smoke machines. Nope. Well, there's we no light shows every once in a while. We do have a thurible every once in a while with incense. And that's you have a, a verger? Uh, from, we have, we've just appointed a guy named, who's a sacristan. And so he helps us set everything up. But yeah, so. Don't I was a at a funeral. Yet. I was at a funeral a couple of weeks ago and this guy was the most impressive <laughs> verger I'd ever seen. You wouldn't make a move unless he told you with that's the readers right. and stuff. And I just, I, I, I hit, and then after at the reception, he had like an Episcopal patch on this camel hair blazer. He was the quintessential, you know, yeah, uh, that guy of the whole enchilada. Oh, uh, and he's in, he's in theatrical stuff. He designs sets and costumes. He's like, this is off the rack, but I often make my own vestments. <laughs> I was like, I wanted, so if, if you guys ever need a verger, yeah. I would uh, consider, you know, coming up there once in a while Definitely. and just keeping, keeping order up there. Good. Yeah. So no, no smoke machines, you know, um, I don't have a soul patch or, uh, you know, anything like that. So, um, there it is. We just, you know, it's just, uh, you know, law and gospel basically every Sunday and, uh, communion. So just say old, fa- old fashioned <laughs> word and sacrament blocking yeah. and tackling. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now, now we want to talk a little bit today about the Eisenheim altarpiece, how it shaped your theology of the cross what this says to in the time of Lent. Yeah. Um, well, I first saw the Eisenheim altarpiece firsthand in uh, 2009. I was a student at this thing called the International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights, led by John Warwick Montgomery. And, okay. Uh, Apo- that, no, you know what I said? Apologetics, evangelism. And human rights. You think of apologetics, evangelism, Bible translation, apologetics. Okay. That's a very interesting, um, I, I like that. Yeah. So, well, the idea being that um, apologetics, you know, is the defense for the truth. And so since this is true, this should uh, then, therefore, how we treat people is a fruit of the truth that we are proclaiming. And so the two were interconnected. And there were a number of guys who were lawyers who would take this class as well. But we went on a trip to um, see the Eisenheim altarpiece in Colmar, France, and uh, by, painted by Matthias Grunewald. And it blew my mind away. I just sat there and looked at it. And uh, because it is so offensive and yet so, so, uh, so, so brutal and rugged yet beautiful all at the same time. When you really and this is not awful. small. This is no. not a small piece of work. No, it's huge. It's like it's it's like a twenty-inch flat-screen TV size, man. It's huge. Yeah, and this is actually a replica of it hung on Karl Barth's desk. I mean, he worked under that. Yeah, I have a copy of it in my office as well. So, well, you and Karl, um, I mean, great minds think alike. I know. <laughs> so, um, uh, um, yeah, it blew my mind away, and uh, and the reason why it blew my mind away is because. 
in Colmar, Colmar is this, uh, well, first thing is, is that this was the first real image of a gruesome crucifixion. You know, everything else basically had, you know, Jesus basically looking all right on the cross. And, uh, and then, um, you know, and surrounded by Flemish maidens and Italian merchants all just kind of hanging out watching it. And this was the first image, real image, famous image of the crucifixion where the, in the background is the Vosges Mountains that are in Alsace, and they're completely dark to highlight this brutal scene. And uh, Jesus, his feet are just kind of clenched and his hands are contorted, and, uh, and he is in real pain. Uh, and what stuck out to me was is that this was in Colmar, the museum, where this was, was originally... Um, uh, an Antonite monastery, and the Antonites took care of people with skin disease and leprosy. And Jesus on the cross, the, the crossbar is bent, so it shows that he's not only bearing the weight of sin, the sin of the world, but uh, he is also covered. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin. So he is becoming one of the fruits of sin, leprosy, and uh, the skin disease. He is covered in it as well. So when you look at it in real life, he's actually like a tinge green with these like red spots on him. And it is, it's brutal. So here he is and he's, he's a leper. You find, I, I was at a, a, a presentation a couple years ago when the Rembrandt Faces of Jesus exhibit came here to Philadelphia. And they had a guy who was from Duke who uh, gave a, um, a talk. He gave a talk about the portraits of Jesus throughout history. And one of the things I noticed was that they tended to be in two groups. There were ones that were highly symbolic and stylized or ones that were attempting to be incredibly realistic, at least for their time period. So if it was a Flemish painting, Jesus was in a medieval Flemish village, but it was meant to be very realistic. And the Einstein was the only one I thought that was tough to categorize because it's realistic and yet symbolic and stylized, much like I think the Gospels are written, like yeah. with as realistic narratives, but with theological symbolism. And it just occurred to me that like it, it, it actually looks and feels and breathes like the New Testament in that regard. Yeah, it is. Well, you have it's both a little of column A, a column B. So if you look to um, our left of the photo with uh, Mary, the two Marys and John there, they both look very much like you would see probably a 15th century Alsatian, dressed like a 15th century Alsatian. And uh, Mary is in all white. And uh, both of them look almost kind of like in nun, nun fashion, like they look like nuns. And, uh, and then John looks like, a, like, a, like an Alsatian gentleman. Uh, and, what's, uh, what's an Alsatian? What, what is Alsatian? Uh, that's a great. Alsace is a region uh, that's on the border. It's part of France today, but it was on the border of France and, and uh, Germany. And was basically France and Germany's battlefield, and it went from back and forth between the two. And so, where its capital today is Strasbourg, and it was uh, an amazing center of the ref- both the Reformation and the Counter Reformation. And so I bet Je- you're great at Jeopardy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you seem like you'd be really good. Well, you know, I do have a, I do have Wikipedia right in front of my face. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. I was so <laughs> impressive. But I, I, you know, all right, I'm editing that out. Maybe yeah, no, just, totally. Know. But um, and then if you look on the other side, though, John the Baptist is there and he is looks like a like a like what you'd think of when you think of John the Baptist. 
and, uh, you know, a first century prophet and a biblical prophet in tattered clothes. And what's amazing is, is that his finger is elongated and, uh, and he's pointing to the cross. And in Latin, it says, he must increase so that I might decrease. And, uh, and boy, isn't that telling and doesn't that say everything about the theology of the cross? And isn't the, isn't the Feast of John the Baptist celebrated like summer solstice when the days start to get shorter for that reason? It is. It's, uh, it's celebrated roughly around, uh, yeah, midsummer, June 20th, June 24th. And uh, it comes from that very idea, he must increase so that I might decrease. So after his fe- feast day, the days get shorter until roughly around Christmas Eve. And then uh, Jesus is born, and then the days get longer. And so, yeah. I did not have Wikipedia open when I said that, <laughs> by the way, just for our listeners. Yeah. So how is this shape? We're a time of Lent, and I think, you know, in my own experience, like, there, there's a, there seems to be a difference between a theology of the cross and theologies about the cross. Oh, yes. You're absolutely right. Or what I call negative theologies of glory. And, um, and uh, this is the idea of kind of um, uh, the theology of the cross is what makes it distinct is that it's like the Eisenheim altarpiece, just silent. It presents the cross to you. And as like Gerhard Forde writes in that great book on being a theologian of the cross, says, you know, that question that Jesus asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't a question where we get an answer to in this age. It's a rather a question that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are drawn into to sit and, uh, and, uh, and wait. And, uh, but where a negative theology of glory or a negative theology of the, uh, yeah, negative theology of glory or uh, kind of theologies about the cross, uh, they're constantly talking and they're constantly making like, you know, uh, well, you know, Jesus is in it suffering with you. So it's uh, these negative theologies of cross, like they're constantly, if you will, making excuses for the suffering and trying to give an answer to the suffering, which is simply making speculations about God and what he's doing. And so as opposed to just complete silence, and this is what made the Eisenheim altarpiece so powerful, is that you were brought right before it as you were dying. And the Antonites were a silent order, so there was no words or anything like, this isn't God's fault, or, you know, God always, God must want you a little sooner, or anything like that. He always takes the best first, any of that nonsense. It was just, you were wheeled before, and you were invited to enter into that image, into that question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, if God takes the good, the, the best people first, I want to I want a piety check before I get on a plane. I want to make sure that I'm on a plane with very impious people. But you know what I'm talking about, and uh, yeah. this I mean, it's just uh, it's almost it almost becomes uh, yeah. We're constantly trying to answer for God, and we're making speculations about Him and why things are happening, as opposed to this just is and. Uh, I do not have any word for you, but uh, Christ has died even for this. Um, and uh, that, that, is, that is enough. And, uh, but we naturally don't believe it to be so. We want to make apologies for God. We want to justify God as opposed to just letting God be God and you be the creature. Yeah. Do you find today, like, I mean, you know, in certain contemporary theological circles over the past decades, 
there's been a lot of critique of what theologians call substitutionary atonement or you know so they'll say it's divine child abuse or, or this and i almost feel like almost just as bad are some of the more traditional defenders of substitutionary atonement because of the sort of rancor that they they retort with sometimes again it's it's sort of like it it's defending a theology of the cross with the tone of the theology of glory <laughs> it's sort of it, it it kind of creates a dissonance yeah absolutely and um uh yeah as if like penal substitutionary atonement is like you know the fact that you have to be atoned for i mean it it, it like people talk about you know i oftentimes hear folks talk about like the glory of god and some of some of my uh, you know uh more like Reformed Baptist brothers, always speaking about the glory of God, the glory of God, and all of this. And, uh, you know, on one level, like, you want to say existentially, what is that, you know? But at the other hand, when people talk about penal substitutionary atonement in this negative way, like divine child abuse, you also realize that they have no idea what they're talking about either, because any real Christian theology that doesn't involve a penal substitutionary atonement is not complete, because Jesus is our priest for a reason, you know. Uh, Jesus, um, it, Jesus, Jesus is our priest for a very reason, and that is to make atonement for our sins. And the idea that this is some sort of child, divine child abuse doesn't take into account like ideas like John, uh, like in John, where he says, "No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down to freely take it up again." As if Jesus kind of was in some sort of divine accident. No, this is all part of it, but I think we can speak, uh, I think we can speak to, like, we want to, the point is, is that we're always trying to get beyond the cross, and this is what the Eisenheim altarpiece won't allow you to do, you know, so we want to jump over it rather quickly with theories of penal substitutionary atonement that get us quickly to the, to the glory of God, which none of us have actually experienced, and or we want to deny penal substitutionary atonement because that would mean that my life is actually that bad that the divine Son of God would have to come and die for me, you know. And, uh, and so I find that both are two sides of the same coin trying to get away from the cross as quickly as possible. Yeah, and isn't, I mean, Karl Barth in the Church of Dogmatics, the way he summarizes the whole gospel story is the judge judged in our place. Because he says, you know, you, you see what starts the human tragedy is our first parents want to judge what's good, what's fitting, what fruit they should eat. What, and he says the whole human story is us wanting to be the judge, a judge of the people, judge what's fitting. And he's like, in all the Gospels, Jesus is the one person who's a fitting judge. Like he forgives who he wants. He calms us. It's clear he's the one, only one who has the right to judge, and yet he's judged in our place. And so yeah. the substitution is all over the place. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole the whole point of the first story every um, uh, every Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent. So traditionally, especially in Anglican liturgies, we begin with the Decalogue, which is the reciting of the Ten Commandments. Now, this isn't a list of things that um, you know you've accomplished over the over the last week during your Lenten fast. This is to reveal how far you actually are. Uh, from God's glory, you know, to, to carry on the, the idea. This is to reveal how broken you actually are. And uh, the reason for the first story always in the first Sunday of Lent is Jesus in the wilderness, is to demonstrate not three ways that you can defeat the devil, but that actually when faced with temptation, you have one who has gone before you and one who will at that more opportune time triumph over the devil for you 
and, uh, and has resisted temptation for you so that, as it says in Hebrews, we might have a great high priest who's like us in every way, yet is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's a very powerful word. We do have a substitute, and that, I believe, is the key metaphor in the Bible. Uh, our and need, says, and he is our substitute. He says no, right, in the desert to everything Adam and Eve said yes to in the garden. Yeah, and the, the first Adam had an incredible garden with all he could eat, and the second Adam had nothing and uh, is in the wilderness. And that's very powerful because it occurs, especially in Matthew's gospel, right after Jesus comes out of what his baptism, it says the Spirit led him. So here he is, the new Israel, coming out of the waters and going into the wilderness and uh, to, for 40 days as opposed to 40 years, which then he goes then into the land to conquer the enemies of God's people. I mean, it's all totally there. Um, but uh, we want to be careful that we don't jump too quickly over that cross, but that rather we journey with him and, uh, and, and are honest about life as it actually is. And it's one that's filled with suffering. Do you feel like Lent is a time like where maybe the theology of glory is the most tempting? Because it's sort of a season for some people of like religious athleticism. <laughs> yeah, I, I always describe Lent as a rocket fuel. Um, rocket fuel uh, is incredibly useful when it's in, you know, when it's used properly. You know, it can propel you into outer space. But when it's used wrongly, as you've seen in the Darwin Awards recently, have you seen that? This guy like strapped a giant rocket to his car and uh, he flew, loaded it with fuel and he flew so fast that when he tried to hit the brake pads, he completely exploded the tires, burned the brake pads out and was killed as the car flipped and went into a fireball. So Lent is like... So, so he got that fuel. Darwin Award posthumously, I'm yeah. guessing. Oh, of course. That's Everybody does. Every, that's what <laughs> yeah, makes the Darwin Awards amazing. And so... Because you really, you're like, wow, there is someone dumber than me. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, but uh, that's what Lent is. Lent is like rocket fuel. And uh, it can, and I hear it so, I mean, I mean, so for me, like I used to always give up chocolate and soda and all of this stuff. And at the end of 40 days, I would like say, you know, I mean, I would completely deny it then. But looking back, I would say like, look what I did for you, Lord. I gave up, like as if that is something impressive in the grand scheme of things. Lent, in the wrong hands, feeds the old Adam and our need for self-justification. But Lent, when it's understood in terms of the Eisenheim altarpiece and the theology of the cross, should expose us and bring us, uh, make us aware of our idolatry, our appetites, our lack of belief in who God has said we are hidden in Christ. And uh, should cause us to fall on our knees. And as Luther says in that 99 thesis, the, 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 first, the, the chief life of the Christian is one of repentance. And uh, should bring us, so Lent shouldn't just be a season, it's every day of our life. Jacob, thanks so much. And I, I really hope that our listeners uh, take that to heart and that we can have a Lent that's uh, combust, combustible in the right sense, not the wrong sense. Yeah. Well, this was really great, and I was glad to be a part of it. So. And I hope to get up there and visit your parish in New York. And what's your website, by the way, for our listeners? Yeah, it's uh, www.calvarystgeorge.org. Have a blessed Lent. You too, and we'll see you at the Mockingbird Conference for sure, everybody, April 14th, 15th, and 16th. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. See my face in the lights on my
C.J. Green, sitting in for David Zoll, who is holding fast. Christ, he's at Christ's hold fast. What is hold? A hold is it a fort or? Yeah, I'm not sure either. I, it's always interesting to me when things are named things that I don't know what they are. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get some research on that. I'm gonna find some answers for our listeners. So you have contributed yet another week ends and we lead off CJ this week with a little Kanye. Are you a Kanye fan? I mean, so I, I have my strongest associations with my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, which came out my senior year of high school. Um, and I just remember the craze with that album. Everybody loved it. Um, and I've, I've listened to Jesus at, at least once all the way through and I've heard, you know, a bunch of the other songs, but, um, yeah, I was excited to to see this new album. Is your fiance a uh, Kanye fan as well? Does she share your affinity? I I would imagine not, <laughs> but it's it's possible. Oh boy, I wonder how you guys are going to do in the newlywed game. I don't know. If you call Kanye in this little blurb you have our culture's our greatest cultural antinomian yeah and what i mean by that is just that he um yeah every sort of cultural little l law or like standard taboo what have you he's he sort of has seemed to break those down with some determination the past couple years of um his celebrity life and i i mean that mostly in his personal life i don't know enough about music to like talk about whether or not his musical artistry is as groundbreaking um, as his personal life, but yeah, I mean, he's dressed himself up as Jesus and insulted Taylor Swift and been called names by the president and found himself weeping, you know, before mass audiences. And so, um, he's just kind of broken down all these little, little cultural standards that we have, which makes him really interesting to us because he does these things that like most people are afraid to do. Um, but yeah, my point is just that he's he's sort of living in defiance of these these laws, um, and and that's not necessarily like the gospel part of him, but it is the part of him that's really interesting to us as as listeners and and viewers. Yeah, I wonder if that like you see that in our politics too. That the people that are popular right now seem to be ones that defy convention in both parties. Yeah, I think that's totally true. It's like the the rise of the id, I think, was one of the Mockingbird posts. It's just like, yeah, the the internal part of us, um, that just like the more like primitive part of us that wants to break the rules, um, but we don't allow that to come to the surface. It's like interesting when we see these other peoples on the on the stage um, doing that. It's interesting too in New Hampshire. You know, you could argue that both parties voted for but in both the victors in both part primaries were 
the guys who want to shake up the system the most in different ways. But in New Hampshire, it's got like the lowest poverty rate, maybe, and one of the lowest unemployment rate below the national average and really cheap gas. Like, why do they want a revolution? (laughs) Maybe it's just is the kind of just anger and frustration with convention and things as they are. Internal craving. And Kanye's in debt. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, like 50 minutes. He's asking his fans to help him. Mm. Well, he's not selling his album, so that's interesting. It's funny that, you know, people think that's so absurd, you know, and on some level it is, right? But if you think of, like, uh, there's a book called All Things Shining, and in it, Sean Kelly and Hubert Dreyfus, I think they're both philosophers, they talk about rereading the classics, and they look at Greek deities and pantheons as, like, deifying human experience. So if you really find transcendence on the water you call it Poseidon, or if you find it in nature, you call it Artemis, the hunter, or if you find it parting, you call it, you know, Bacchus, you know, the, the God of the divine, or if you find it in combat, you call it Ares. And really what you're, you're deifying are these human capacities and, and, and they're kind of, you know, there's not one divine, there's all these divines. And I wonder if celebrities are not that for us now, there are kind of tribal deities, our pantheon of deities, so, like, I don't know, if 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 he's, like, a celebrity deity, maybe it makes sense to ask for uh, offerings from his worshipers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's that seems to be correct. So people think, that people that think they're more mature and sophisticated than polytheists, maybe we're not. We just worship celebrities. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you also ha- here have, is this really interesting, uh, sc- a, a letter... That Justice Scalia, who, you know, of blessed memory, God rest his soul, who in 1998, he was attending the funeral of a retired Supreme Court justice, uh, Lewis Powell, at a Presbyterian church in Richmond, Virginia. He wrote a a letter to the the, uh, presiding minister at the funeral, Dr. Goodlow. I think I know people that went to his church or have gone to his church. Uh, And he was really moved. By the fact that the funeral f- focused mostly on the resurrection and not a eulogy kind of thing, and he, I learned a new word from this from this letter. He <laughs> said that Scalia is, you know, after complimenting the pie, the, the really faith provoking proclamation of the resurrection that was the center of the thing. He says that I am told that in Roman Catholic canon law in encomiums at funeral masses are not permitted though if that is the rule i have never seen it observed except in the breach that's interesting encomium means the praise of any person or thing and he's base has basically that you know what what really the point of a funeral even of, a, of an admirable person praising their virtues can cause us to forget that we're praying for and giving thanks for god's inexplicable mercy to a sinner and that eulogies oftentimes seem to diminish that and they try to make the person sanitized you know the mem- let's remember all the best things and we we lose sight of the fact that this is all about hope in the resurrection and mercy for sinners yeah those are just such powerful words especially especially given the fact of his his recent death um but just to look back on his perspective and to, to see that is it's really powerful. But at the same time, like, yeah, you totally understand why, why people err on the side of focusing on the eulogy. You know, it is consolation for the, 
for the churchgoers, the people who sit in the pews. Um, and if, yeah, sometimes it's a little bit harder to grasp the concept of Christ's mercy versus like remembering the good things about your friend who's passed. But yeah, and just totally respect um, Scalia's perspective on this. And it's just so powerful, especially like given the timeliness of it. Yeah. And, you know, I liked your encomium about Kanye West in the post here. There was very much a thoughtful encomium there. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but I'm going to use that word like that's how I was when I was yes. studying for the GREs. I just walk around and like try to, oh, that's very J. June. You know, I was trying to like use the words in my vocabulary. So I was terrible for like four months. Such a good effort. Well done. And last thing I want to look at, there's t- this is chock full of other good stuff. So I, I encourage everybody to look peruse peru you know it's funny peruse means to like look at like very slowly it's one of those words that i think people don't use it sounds like it skim it but it really means to i think it means to look deeply so yeah i always thought it was no i so i encourage people don't skim i think i'm using it right don't skim peruse this baby with all (laughs) care but last thing i want to look at in summary is this piece about narcissism an op-ed appearing in the new york times this week entitled narcissism is increasing so you're not so special and you kind of highlighted this yeah i think like the i mean first we do have to make a distinction i think there's a difference between like the narcissism that we would point out as like mockingbird readers that like yeah all of us to some extent are narcissists and there is like narcissistic personality disorder um if i'm understanding correctly and i don't want to like merge those two things together but it is um i think particularly helpful from a faith perspective to point out that um yeah to some level all of us suffer from from the narcissistic epidemic um where it's like pretty um pretty natural for us as human beings to like look in the mirror and think like oh that's that's me that's interesting um, I want to. I want to know more about whatever that is. That reflection. Um, and you say here that, it, and just with the, the with the availability of social media, um, we find that accelerated. You note that, like the literal in the literal myth of Narcissus, Narcissus falls in love not with himself, but with his reflection. And so, in 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 the modern version, Narcissus would fall in love with his own Instagram feed and starve himself to death while compulsively counting his followers. Yeah, which which just gets to the, the concept of like self-justification, that you are driven by um, the need for, for love from other people, love and affirmation, I guess. It's probably a little more shallow than love. Yeah, we want just affirmation. We want to know that people are liking the things that we're doing or the way that we look. Um, yeah, and it's, so, yeah. it's interesting. You know, Thomas Merton talks about the difference between seeing yourself and being yourself. That when you're seeing yourself, it's like a shadow self. When I'm thinking, oh my gosh, okay, how is this person perceiving me? Do I look like an expert? Do I look like a good husband or a good son-in-law or a good neighbor? Do I look like a good church person? Or that Instead of just being yourself, that, that, that seeing yourself. And that's an interesting metaphor and way to see it. But now like our capacity to see ourselves is so unique. And it seems like in human cult, history of human culture with social media, because you really can look at us make yourself a self object in a way that it's probably not very easy was not quite as easy to do you could always do the seeing yourself thing and 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 live a shadow self but the capacity to like fall in love with 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 your image is unbelievably possible now 
Yeah, and and with this increased capacity for us to see ourselves, um, the redemptive part of it is that, like, it points out the fact that we need to be seen as creatures, and so as creatures, that sounds so religious, but like, yeah, as as beings, we we need to be seen, and that's that's the like that's the role that God fulfills. Yeah, I think yeah, to be seen and heard and known, uh, to know and be known is is what we all deeply desire most it's like it's interesting because the way you get into the church and the renewal right baptism and eucharist they're two things you can't do yourself you know there are things that have to be received not achieved well thanks cj i appreciate you spending time and again i hope everybody peruses it and i'm sure as they do there will be much encomium coming your way by the insights you've provided us in another weekend. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Mockingcast. If you like what you heard, please stop over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. And as usual, you can find all the content we referenced on our website, mbird.com. Have a great weekend.